Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to the final chapter of the in-season edition of the Philacrosophy Podcast. I'm here with PLL Chaos head coach, Andy Towers. Andy, pretty awesome uh, weekend all across, huh? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh, you know, I think with the way the games were played out, you can actually say the last three games of the year were upsets. I'm really excited for Lars. All these guys did a, an incredible job. But let's dive right into the games. The Philacrosophy Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Coaches Training Program. If you are a coach interested in sharpening your saw, like so many of the guests on the show, you are going to love the content in this program. Go to www.jm3coaches.com for more information. Let's start off with uh, Duke, Virginia. Um, I had Virginia win in this game. I really felt like that they were going to be able to beat Duke. But then again, I thought Hopkins was going to beat Duke, and I thought that Notre Dame was going to beat Duke. Uh, Duke came to play, and honestly, they kind of threw the game away. They had it. And uh, Lars somehow in this magical run um, got the breaks he needed and then made the plays that they needed to make. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it's funny. Um, you know, when the, when the draw first came out, I had uh, Towson beating Maryland, and I had Hopkins beating Notre Dame. And I was wrong about those two looks. I was right about every one. When we first picked the first two podcasts, I had Penn State um, losing to Virginia in the final. And then just our last podcast, I picked Yale to beat Penn State and, and Virginia to beat them as a team of destiny, and it happened. Um, but certainly in watching the way that that – Duke Virginia game evolved. I just felt like Duke was just wearing them out, and and uh, you know to see uh, Brian Smith score two goals off the draw. It, it seemed like even though Petey Lasalle was getting the better of them, the fact that they were able to generate offense off the faceoff, and it just looked like Virginia had problems in the first half scheme problems you know that that's kind of the way it seemed to me and that Duke even though they didn't start fast they did take control after the uh the first quarter and they jumped out to a you know a three goal lead and they just started to sort of grind Virginia down and I thought Virginia was was wasn't going to be able to get back into it, but then obviously Peter Lasala ended up doing what he's been able to do down the last two thirds of the season and take control of the key faceoffs down the stretch of the game and give them the possessions that they needed. And we all know that you give Virginia's offense the ball enough, and that's a team that's that can that's going to get to you. You know they're going to get to you at some point, and and. You know, let's face it, they've got a five-headed monster on offense. But at each time in crucial times throughout the 
you know, last three quarters of the season, it seemed like it was a different guy all the time. You know, in the beginning, you know, it was at times Doc Sakin, and then it was Michael Krause, and then he gets hurt, and it's Matt Moore, and Eden Laviano's consistently scoring goals, and Ryan Conrad, while we thought that he wasn't a guy that was blowing you away with point production, and he was doing it in the more blue-collar areas of the game, in between the lines off the ground on defense, transition from defense to offense, Ryan Conrad became – you know, a high point producer down the stretch of the season. And at the end of the day, um, their ability to get possessions and, 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 and get key stops was the difference in them being able to come back against Duke. And, yeah, they got a break. I mean, listen, Duke had the ball with a minute and 10 seconds left. All they got to do is clear it away from the sidelines. And that game is over, yeah. um, you know, and, but it didn't happen. And, uh, and Virginia was able to make them pay with two goals inside of a minute. Sure enough, push it to overtime and keep Lars's memorable run going. But what a what a weekend for Virginia, huh? Unbelievable. You know, and I, I really um, – Alex Rohde played phenomenally well in the goal, made so many big saves. I thought the defense – I thought their defense came to play all weekend long. They had this really interesting kind of um, – you know, sometimes it was a very straight-up zone, and sometimes it was kind of this match-up zone that was more like an amoeba defense, it seemed like. I haven't gone back to rewatch anything, so this is just kind of in real time. But they were, they were getting double teams if you turn your back. Their poles played like absolute men. Um, and then, you know, I, I felt like in the beginning of the game, in the first half, they only scored a couple goals, but I, I felt like they, were, they, they weren't shooting well and they were getting chances. And, and Duke was showing to everything – they were getting in some inside looks. They were getting some step-down looks. They really were struggling with the matchups. Um, and I, I, I really thought that game should have probably been closer at the half because I, I felt like Virginia played pretty good D and actually got some great chances that they didn't cash in on. Obviously, the throw away with a minute 12 left, you know, gave them the window that they needed. They score, and then, they, and, and, and then uh, Smith jumps on the faceoff, gives them the ball right back. Um, and, um, and then they scored again. I did a, on my blog this week, I did a pretty cool breakdown on what their offense does. And I saw it. It was I awesome. Oh, thanks. I wasn't sure if this offense was going to be able to produce the kind of numbers, you know, but the fact is, you know, and we'll talk about it in a little later, a little bit later, Duke was sliding and they had 10 assists on 13 goals. Yeah. It wasn't sliding and they scored goals one-on-one -on -one all day. Yeah. So, unbelievable job, unbelievable game, and then to win an OT. I mean, you know what it's like, Andy. It is so hard to win a one. It's so hard to win a game in NCAA Division One lacrosse. It is so hard to win a tournament game. It is so hard to win a one-goal game. It is so hard to win a comeback and an overtime game. And this guy has done it eight, seven or eight times. Unbelievable. Yeah. unbelievable. It really is. And, you know, I know we'll get on in more detail to the Yale-Virginia game today later on, but um, I did see – in your blog, the breakdown of their two-two-two, and they're setting, you know, the the pick for the poll at X. And and the thing that makes Virginia so scary, and and allows them to succeed with what is really, you know, a really straightforward two-two-two pick action in X, two-man game in X scheme with just basically whichever way the ball comes across the goal line extended. You know, the ball side attackman in the crease back cuts to the backside pipe. And then the help side attackman in the crease, you know, ball cuts and then sort of floats around in that no man's land area, you know, in that, you know, eight by eight yard box right above the goal. 
and then they have the shooters that have the ability to stretch the defense out with Doc Aiken and, you know, Ryan Conrad or whoever else they put in there. And, you know, traditional schemes would tell you that if you aren't, if you don't have a lot of motion with your off ball players and sort of change the roles of the off ball defenders as the Dodger or the two man game action happens, you're probably giving the defense the best of all worlds, right? You're allowing them to see the ball carrier and you're allowing them to slough from a non-moving offensive player, off ball player. And, and you would think over time things would get stale, but the reality is they have all the perfect pieces to run that kind of an offense. You've got two super dangerous Dodger feeder, one lefty in Kraus, one righty in Moore. You've got, you know, great inside guys that understand the timing of when they do their back cuts, when they do their fills. And then you've got guys from the outside that either have the step down range to hit a 15 yarder like Aitken does, or they have the wherewithal to utilize the front side hitch or a wind up hitch and switch and turn those 15 yarders into 12 to 10 yarders on the run. And you're really looking at all the pieces to make that specific scheme work. I, I don't know a lot of teams in the country that have the personnel in all six spots to run what I would consider a stagnant offense as it relates to, you know, a motion look versus that type of look with minimal motion. You know, the, the motion is really in the, in the crease is really what it is. And it's basically just a back cut followed by a, a help side fill. Yeah. And they were able to consistently generate offense. And as you just said, you know, Duke was sliding to that and it yields, you know, 10 assists on 13 goals. Right. And, and, and today Yale was not, and Michael Krause came around and scored at least two goals off of it and had another, he could have had five three shots. Like he could have easily finished with five. And yeah, they could have three others that were should have been goals. That's I mean, right. Yeah. That's right. You That's know, right. And, and it's and interesting. I, and, I, and I look at this, Jamie, and I really feel like I prefer, you know, the way that Duke covered it. Um, but again, you pick your poison and, and each played it differently and each ended up coming away with a loss and credit Virginia and credit their players for, for making, you know, what appeared to be a somewhat generic scheme. Great. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because, like, you know, I, I, I don't think Duke had some bad scheme, but there were some times when they were sliding and you were thinking to yourself, like, you know, I, even on the game winner, Matt Moore was not going to be shooting that shot. And they feed it inside to Laviano, game over. And, you know, Yale, I mean, it is a total pick your poison. And what the interesting thing about the way Virginia runs it is that they do have multiple people. Like, they, you know, sometimes Kraus is – in a step-down position. Sometimes he's inside in the slot. Sometimes he's the backside cutter. Sometimes he's the dodger. Sometimes he's the picker. Um, you know, Moore plays all three of those spots also. Aiken yeah. usually doesn't go inside, but he's a shooter or a dodger. And so they at least put different guys in some different spots in there. And they probably always get Laviano. You know, he gets a shorty all day. So he just gets, you know, if you don't cover him on the back cut, you know, the dive cut to the back pipe. It's just over. You have to guard that. Then it basically leaves a three-on-two out top, and they just find it. You know, I, lo I love that dive cut to the backside pipe as a stick-up field cut. You know, it retains your angle. 
And when you're dealing with one-handed players, sometimes they're able to get those cross-body catches and their angles shrinking when they catch a cross-body pass there. They really got to they really got to get that off with either quickness or some deception to finish that when they catch that downfield because yeah. they're catching it late, which gives the goalie a moment to get cross cage and take away what they hope, I'm sure, is the near side. But I like that back cut to the backside pipe as a, a stick up field where you're dragging your stick and you retain that angle. Yeah. Um, obviously, you've got to be – concerned about secondary slides dropping down to cover that stick because you're not leading with your stick, you're dragging your stick. But I was just, uh, I was just super impressed that they were able to go through the weekend with a scheme that we, you know, it's easy to understand. Yeah, pretty, it was to, pretty simple. Able to do it because if you don't, if you don't honor them coming above the goal line extended, whether it's off the dodge or off the pick, they're going to they're gonna get great shots and score a lot of the times. And if you honor it and slide, then you're leaving three guys to cover four above the goal. And with scripted spacing like that and um, stretch shooters, you're just going to pay the penalty, and they did. Man, they kept it so simple, too. All right, let's talk about Penn State-Yale. I mean, this game, I just was so shocked in the first quarter of this game to see Penn State go down 10-1. to 1. Yeah, you know, it felt like somebody – got to the kids because for Yale to go up 10-1, uh, you know, it was just unbelievable. Yale beat Penn State at Penn State's game. And it was interesting that at halftime when they talked to Andy Shea and he had said that, you know, they need to play even faster, you know, and you would think you get that kind of lead and, you know, the tendency for anybody would be, okay, let's value the possessions and choke out the game and maintain this lead. But if they had done that, Penn State would have came back and probably won by four goals. And, and Yale continued to play really, really aggressively. And, and they shot well. And it helps when you're face-off and wins, you know, whatever, 10 of the first 11 face-offs. Uh, you know, but, but credit Jeff Tambroni with – making a change at the X, but I think more importantly than that was coming back to Gerard Arcieri. And, and you know from your days in college coaching, and, and I know certainly um, from facing off that, you know, it's ebbs and flows. And, yeah. and you lose bunches and you win bunches. And for them to, you know, go back to Gerard Arcieri and, and you know, commit themselves to him, he responds with not only a bunch of wins, but three goals off the draw – and they made their push, and they did everything they could to get back into the game, but they just couldn't stop Yale on the defensive end, and, and Yale was able to close them out in a way that Penn State has closed opponents out all year in 2019. What a game that was. Yeah, unbelievable. I mean, can you imagine? 28 of 39 face-offs is what Ireland went for. And, I mean, I, I, it had to have impacted him a little bit today. I mean, he did not look at I mean, he had to have been exhausted. It had to, you know, obviously we look at the shot clock and, and you and I had discussed this in some podcasts, you know, a few weeks ago. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people, I know I certainly did. I anticipated the shot clock to be uh, a shot in the arm for team defenses. I, I sort of anticipated crummy offense. And I thought the result of that would be a rushed offense. I thought the result of that would be the lower scoring games. And as teams sort of, 
got comfortable with it as the season progressed. What you saw were high scoring games, higher scoring games than ever before. And many, many records fell and will continue to fall as teams get used to this shot clock thing. But an, an unforeseen uh, dynamic was a drastic increase in the amount of face-offs that each teams are getting. And so when you are winning 70% of the face-offs and there's 20 face-offs, you know, when you win 14 and they win six and you've got an eight possession advantage, you know, that's, that's, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty devastating. With that said, now you change that to 40 face-offs and all of a sudden you're winning 28 and they're winning 12. You're looking at a 16 possession difference just at the X. That puts a lot of pressure on the team that's not successful at the X. It puts a lot of pressure on their respective goalie to really outperform the other goalie in order to try to statistically even that out to some degree. And I think that, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't like seeing people whine about we need to make a change in the face-off rule. I think that these guys are reaping the benefits of the hard work of the kids in their program. And I'd hate to see them make an adjustment simply due to, um, you know, what I would consider whining. <laughs> the funny thing is, is, is all the adjustments that have been made to the face-off rule in cleaning it up is exactly why we're seeing these incredibly dumb. You got it. That's exactly right. Dead on. Everybody, you know, grab and claw and scrap and, you know, do whatever you got to do and look the other way. We, we would have, we would have 60, 40 most of the time. We wouldn't have 70, 30 and 80, 20. You got it. You're spot on. I mean, the fact is, is they've cleaned up the cadence. They've cleaned up the pre-whistle setup. And as a result, the guys that have, the quickest hands that are on the front end of the whistle with technique that's sound enough to allow them to win every time if they're quicker, that's the result that you're seeing. But even with the dominance that TD Iron has had throughout his career, and make no mistake about it, as great as Trevor Baptiste is and was during college, TD Ireland is the most dominant faceoff guy in co college history. And he, he deserves the success that he's had. But there's also what, what doesn't get addressed and what might, most people might not pick up is the fact that, and you could see it today a bunch of times, T.D. Erlen, as good a technique as he is and as quick as he is off the draw, he might be the best in history of competing for the ground ball and having, you know, the most amount of greatest amount of familiarity with when he loses where his opponent looks to place the ball and he does such a good job of getting to that 50 50 ground or he does such a good job of creating 50 50 ground balls out of face-offs that his opponents control I, I just couldn't get over how many winbacks he had in today's game you know peter the salad for the most part he controlled for the first five I had him controlling about eight of the first 10. And while TD Erland dominated in the second half in terms of the move and placing the ball and, and exiting where he wanted to do it, he got beat at the X technique wise in the first half, you know, substantially, but he was able to scrap and, and, and turn a lot of controlled losses into wins. 
And that's a part of his game that he doesn't get adequately uh, celebrated for. The Philocrosophy Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Lacrosse Academy. This 13-week online program is designed to teach cutting-edge lacrosse skills and IQ. Athletes will learn dozens of new techniques, creative drills, X's and O's, and most importantly, how to integrate it all into their game. For more information, go to www.jm3academy.thinkific.com. So, going into this game... I mean, I was rooting for Lars. I was rooting for Virginia. I really thought that Yale was going to be able to win the game, although I do think fatigue had to have been a factor. They did not look like the same team. But, you know, both teams have to play a semifinal, and it wasn't like Virginia, you know, they played overtime, right? So they even played a longer game. But, yeah. but um, Virginia, you knew they were going to have to make saves. They were going to have to, like, do something defensively that was going to be special, that was different than – you know, than what, what had been happening. Because, I mean, Penn State's defense, you know, literally just got shredded, you know, for 21 goals. And you know that they've got good schemes and good players. I mean, they're good. But, but it was something about the matchup that was just to Yale's favor. Um, and you had to wonder if, if, if Virginia's, you know, 2-2-2 two, two, two big little invert offense was going to be able to, like, you know, score enough goals to win what I thought, you know, maybe had to be a 17-16 ball game or whatever. But, you know, when it was 2-1 to one after the first quarter, you knew that Virginia was playing the kind of game they wanted to be able to play, kind of eliminated the face-offs from, from, from pure domination, um, regardless if they lost all of them, which they didn't. Um, their defense was their defense was so packed in and was, you know, I really felt like Yale should have probably shot some balls that they just were looking to hitch and go on because there was just late approaches. They had screenshot opportunities from 11 to 13 yards that they probably could have shot and didn't. And it just allowed Virginia to get out, be athletic. And then when Yale would do its patented rollbacks in the middle of the field, they were jumping on them with double teams and putting the ball on the ground and, I mean, it was such an impressive defensive game plan and effort um, to go along with just a, 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 an amazing amount of poise and talent. Um, just uh, was so impressed with Virginia today. Um, they deserved they deserve that. Yeah, you know, listen, Virginia, Virginia earned the victory. There's no question about it. You know, I think that coming into this game, I, I got to be honest, I thought T.D. Erland would win the faceoffs. And I thought it would be tough for Virginia to offset what I thought would be a noticeable advantage. All I've seen Yale do the entire year is dictate the, dictate the outcome of games on the offensive end by making smart decisions. And they, and, and they properly utilized TD's dominance at the X to just choke out opponents. Today yeah. was different. You know, today, Yale just didn't play well. That yeah. was part of it, right? Like, right. looking at the way they played, number one, um, they didn't shoot very well. They missed the goals, right? The first four shots of the game, Alex Rude made, made unbelievable saves or they slightly missed the goal. And I, I felt at one point they should have been up 4-1 and they were down 2-1 for the longest time. You look at the amount of um, – Missed first ground ball opportunities 
that Yale had today, it was so uncharacteristic. How many times does a Yale pole have a chance at a ground ball and they don't pick it up? Like almost never does that happen. And yet it seemed to happen over and over and over and over again today. I mean, when I say they must have missed six first chance ground balls with time and space with their poles, it seemed like that was the case. I, and, and again, to echo what you just said, the amount of seemingly, you know, 10 yard shots that they passed up to try to potentially get something better only to ultimately have uh, a last pass get knocked down by a Yale shaft or, um, you know, something happening where Yale seemed like they were uncharacteristically dropping passes or throwing to somebody that wasn't there. Um, you know, it just seemed like they just didn't get the breaks that, that great teams create for themselves by being fundamentally sound and scheme inherent. And, and um, but, but look, you know, like a lot of people referenced in the, in the Twitter world, Virginia, even though they went into overtime, those were easier minutes in the Duke game than Yale had in just a, Track me. a regulation game versus Penn State. The Penn State-Yale game was played so much faster and so much harder. Uh, and I feel like that wear and tear, yeah. along with playing the second game, it looked like Yale got tired down the stretch of this game. And at one point, I just felt like, you know, they just – they look exhausted. And, 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 and even though they were winning the faceoffs in the second half, I really thought a possible turning point was going to be with like 10 minutes left in the fourth quarter when Peter LaSala got a second violation by going early. And I thought, okay, um, if, Yale can, if Yale can score a couple goals here, yeah. TD Erland's going to be in a position where he's going to be able to be at the front of the whistle and Yale's going to have to, or, or Virginia's going to have to be conscious of not jumping. And Yale has the possibility to go on a run here. Um, but they, they, they weren't able to do it. You know, one play in particular where there was a massive scrum and it looked like Yale was going to get it. And Ryan Conrad picks it up one-handed, right-handed, runs out, comes in on a break, you know, tight roll the defender that picks him up, doesn't get trail checked, and, uh, and looks to the top left corner and slides, you know, a low and away right corner shot and – it was just such an unbelievable play. To me, that was, that was the dagger. You know, that, that was the one where it looked like it broke Yale's will. And Yale, you and I both know, they, they are as tough a team as, as there is in Division I lacrosse. But that play seemed like it broke their will. Yale is, has been such a physically dominant team. And Virginia went toe-to-toe with them in, in, the, in terms of physicality. Like, I mean, I have to say Penn went toe-to-toe with them just as well physically, but I would say that Virginia's physicality today, their speed. How about their ridebacks? I mean, that ball goes, you know, they would turn it over. There'd be a loose ball. There'd be a rebound. And Virginia, even if they didn't get it, which 50% of the time they got the ball, the other 50% of the time they just got there with their bodies. They got to the to a, to to these guys. Not they weren't just like swinging. I mean, yeah, they they checked it away a couple times too. But the way they got there with their bodies and put the ball on the ground, God, I mean, it was just it was the kind of swarming effort attack. You know, when you've got like this, you know, Kraus and Moore 
are two of the most athletic attack men. They know, are. With, you know, in the country and, you know, of any attack. You're just not going to get two attack that have that kind of speed. They're savages, and they played that way. And, and Laviano, his yeah. writing relentlessness is just unbelievable. Oh. You know, at the end of the day, I, I, I think you come back and, you know, in a lot of ways you end up taking on the characteristics of your coaches. And while Yale plays tough and disciplined, uh, you know, which is certainly reflective of characteristics that Andy Shea has, I think that those that know Lars Tiffany and know his relentless hyper-competitive spirit and just adherence to never getting beaten in, in the effort-related areas of the game, his team just exemplified the characteristics that he has as a guy uh, so well at the end of the year. And, and, and you could kind of see it about two weeks ago or three weeks ago that, that Virginia just started to take on. It seemed like Virginia had finally been like, all right, coach, we're in, we're all in, and we're going we're gonna to follow you. And, and maybe it was before that. I don't know. I don't go to their practices. But it just seemed like they reached a point where Virginia – Everybody in the locker room moved over to Lars and they said, all right, we're all in. You lead us. We're going to do what you say. And if we aren't successful, it's your fault. And, uh, you know, we're going to give you their heart and soul. And sure enough, they gave him their heart, his heart, their heart and soul. And, and they were successful. I mean, that's, a, that's as, as well of a job done, well, since last year in Andy Shea. <laughs> I mean, that's that's yep. about how you look at it. I was so impressed with um... – Ryan Conrad in this NCAA tournament. I mean, everybody always talked about him. And, you know, I knew he was good, but, you know, he is, he is, um, he's special on so many levels. The plays that he made, you know, that one ground ball might have been my favorite play of the whole NCAA tournament. It was incredible. You know, one handed ground, that, that one handed ground ball is why little kids should be practicing one handed ground ball <laughs> practice all the time. There's just no question about it. You mean um, don't listen to the fake fundamentalist saying that you should never scoop a one-hand ground ball? Absurd. Because if he go with one hand, he reached right around that dude. I mean, that guy was going to be getting that ground ball. He reached right around and picked it up. I mean, it was incredible. And was mindful of not getting back-checked. You know, he, like, brought his right hand in front of his hip and, you know, minimized the amount of stick exposure on his backhand as he picked up a one-handed ground ball that, you know, uh, most people would miss with two hands. I'm with you. You know, Ryan Conrad, I, I, he always got a lot of juice. And I would, to be honest with you, I, I never really loved his game that much. I always was kind of, and I know he got hurt and all that stuff. And, and certainly you can't quantify that and, and, and how much of a setback that is. But I'll tell you, I, I walk away from this final four and this tournament in general thinking, wow, that kid is tough as shit. Yeah. You know, really tough as hell. Never does he get rattled. I mean, awesome. never. He is as smooth as they come. It's almost like he knows he has two extra gears and isn't necessarily using them at that moment that you're watching him, but he knows that he can go way faster and he doesn't seem to get tired. No. You know, it reminds me of Crazy. a boy that was on the market back in the 70s called Tiny Mighty Moe's. And what you would do with those is you would rev them up and rev them up and rev them up. And then you just put them on the ground and they would just roll forever. And Ryan Conrad looks like a 1970s tiny, mighty Mo. He actually reminds me of a little brown and black guy we used to call Mitchell. Old Mitchell. I know about him. 
He was a 110 percenter. He was. there in Rhode Island. Yeah. He actually, I don't know if you knew this, Andy, but he was a four-time first-team All-American at Hopkins. He's the only player ever to be uh, player of the year at every position. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah, only, only other person was, that was in the running was Jesus Christ. Crapper. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so this is our last segment of the college lacrosse season. And uh, I just want to say thanks to John Canaris who sponsored our podcast. I mean, Absolutely. we do not deserve to have a sponsor. We're just basically like total hacks, but that we, that, you know, we definitely know something about lacrosse. We're actually hacks. <laughs> but to have John Canaris uh, from Oxia time, uh, sponsor our podcast has been a blast. I, I'm wearing my, I've been going with my watch a lot, Andy. Check it out. I got, my, I got my little leather sporty strap, and now I just got my, with my Oxia time piece. Um, and, uh, and I love it. And, and, and I think that if you guys uh, will listen to this podcast, if you haven't gone to oxiatime.com, check it out. These watches are sick. To, to be able to have your school logo on the watch uh, is it, in a really subtle way is really sweet. And the, there's tons of different styles. Uh, check it out. Go to oxytime.com. Check out their Ray. And if you use Bruno 100, you can get $100 off. Uh, obviously, it's graduation time. Um, and so uh, you should think about it. I, uh, I agree. John was uh, unbelievably generous with us. Gives our podcast uh, some credibility that a couple of hacks and certainly one hack and one blowhard need. Uh, <laughs> was able to do that. And uh, you can't teach blowhard. Yeah, well, listen, I'm a blowhard in, in, in practice uh, is what I am. I'll never get there. I'll never get there. Um, and I just got to keep doing it. Um, and so, but I echo your sentiment. John Canaris adds, uh, adds a lot to uh, professionalism to our podcast. And we were very, very lucky he decided to attach his Oxia timepieces to our uh, philosophy in-season edition podcast so each week we do a uh, a player of the week and normally an oxy time ivy league player of the week for this championship game um we're gonna change it up a little bit you can go ivy if you want you can go uh you know virginia if you want you can go whoever you want but um for me my oxy time player of the week uh is matt moore um i felt like you know you could have picked a lot of guys on the virginia team their goalie played incredible pd lasalle was great you know, uh, Kraus was a massive threat. Conrad, I mean, it was just one after the other. But, but Matt Moore scored huge goals time and again. Uh, he had incredible looks. Um, and uh, for me, was uh, the, my Oxiatime Player of the Week. My Oxiatime Players of the Weekend. I'm stepping outside the box as like Martindale. Can you tell me what talk show Wink Martindale hosted? Uh, wasn't Wink, um, come on down. What is it? No, not come on down. Joker's Wild. Joker's Wild. And Wink, Wink actually may have also done Tic Tac Doe, oh, which yeah. was another one. Um, I hope I'm right there. But I'm going off the board with the Joker to reference Joker's Wild, and I'm actually going to do three. I'm going to do one from each game. My okay. first one is Pete LaSala from the UVA-Duke game on Saturday for him to win the last eight or nine face-offs in a row and allow them to, to come roaring back and end up winning in double overtime. Uh, that was well-earned. My second Oxia time player of the weekend goes to Matt Brandow, 
with seven and one as a freshman at Yale in their 21-17 win over Penn State. They out-Penn Stated Penn State. And for him to score seven of those goals and have a hand in eight points as a freshman was super impressive. Also loved his interview, very humble and understated. And then my Oxia time overall player of the weekend has to go to a guy that I was not high on all year long, but stepped it up when it mattered most. Not too unlike Jack Starr from last year's Yale team, and that's Alex Rode in the goal for UVA. Uh, unbelievable. I was talking to Timmy McGinney yesterday via text, and one of the things that we discussed was Alex Rode needed to have his save percentage higher than TD Erland's. And I don't think that ended up being the case, but he was 80% at halftime, and that gave him enough of a margin where they were able to ride out the second half and win it, and he deserved it. He stuck it to me and every other naysayer with his performance this weekend. Um, and those are my three Oxia Time players of the weekend. Awesome. Well, Andy, it was a blast. I can't wait to do it next year. Maybe we'll do something over the summer, but um, this was a great call. Thanks for uh, thinking of this idea of doing this together. Um, so much fun to just focus in on the college lacrosse season. It's truly really the best time of year. And, but now it's summer. Summer. Time for another Ted Kennedy. <laughs> All right, buddy. Have a good one. You too, brother. See ya. The Philocrosby podcast is made possible in part by the JM3 video assessment tool. There is no question that video is a critical part to player development. One way or another, your son or daughter must utilize video to learn their game and the game. To learn more, see video testimonials, or register, go to www.jm3video.com today.